Welcome to Your Work, Your Way. This is the podcast where you learn to get in touch with your inner CEO with soul. Learn to take charge of your career. Learn to show up with confidence in a way that is aligned with who you really are. I'm your host, Lisa Filia, Masters in Psychology, Certified Life Coach, Expert Career Confidence Coach, and Founder of Believe C. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, we have a special episode today. I am so excited to introduce you all to former client and colleague and friend of mine, Katya. We have her here today and we worked together, gosh, it was a couple years ago now, uh, but throughout the time we've been following each other's journey and I have her here to share with you some of the takeaways, insights, and growth that she's done because you can hear from her, from her own words the ways in which we can help ourselves grow. And even if we're feeling stuck or unsure of what's next or trapped in perfectionism, whatever it might be, there are always tweaks and things we can do to help ourselves forward. She is a living, breathing example of this. I don't want to give away too much because it'll come out in the interview, but uh, she's amazed me in the things that she's been doing and not surprised, but celebrating with her and all of the growth that she's had. So without further ado, I'll go ahead and let her introduce herself. Lisa, thank you so much for having me. And what kind words you're saying. I'm blushing and gushing already. So I so appreciate you. I so appreciate that initial connection three years ago and that we get to watch each other, like you said, grow, evolve, change, transform over the last several years and that we get to do it together. So delighted to be here. Super stoked for our conversation today. I love it. Yes. Thank you. Okay. So we have a couple things we want to make sure to talk about. One, she has released a book. Yes. Yes. The paperback is officially out on Amazon, on Barnes and Noble, and soon to be in Los Angeles bookstores. So if you're ever in the area, check back in about a month or so, they should be out there. Awesome. Okay. So uh, we will be talking a bit more about that. And to get us started, take us back to that time when we first started working together, what was it that led you to decide you were seeking out a coach? Yeah. Lisa, that point in my life, I was working full-time and also doing grad school full-time among a couple of other consulting Toastmasters, you know, trying to have a social life and an exercise-based regimen. And I was burnt out. It was hard to be a human back then, as it might be hard to be a human for a lot of us these days in 2022. But I realized that I needed some sort of external perspective from the perspective of asking really good questions to help me see what I wasn't seeing. Every person by their nature has blind spots and you, by asking specific questions and by allowing me to see different frameworks of thinking, allowed me to access something that I needed to access within myself. Maybe it was something that I knew deep within, but I couldn't excavate it until you kind of allowed me to bring it out of me for me. Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's easy for for us to get stuck in our own way in our own head. But I think sometimes what can happen is then we look for someone else to solve it for us. Who can teach me this? Who can I throw money at? Like I don't know about you, but I've thought this about the gym before where I wish you could just give the gym money and then you could be thin. <laughs> and right. Right. Just yeah. a simple in and out, a simple solution. Yeah. But just like you have to do the actual workouts yourself. It's the same when it comes to coaching. We, we can 
hire the best person out there, but if we don't do the work ourselves, nothing's going to change. And so thank you for sharing that point about knowing it was in you, but you just hadn't gotten to it yet. You hadn't gotten to the core of what it was yet and how coaching can help you with that. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Is, is there anything you tried before coaching? I'm curious just to kind of know the full journey. You mentioned you were burnt out. Did you have other methods you, you attempted or you did that helped? And what were they? Yeah, it's, I'm so glad for this question because ever since sixth grade, I have been in some sort of coaching, mentorship, peer coaching capacity where I had so routinely coached other folks on their issues, their challenges. But again, it's really hard to turn that mirror back on yourself and really shine all of those questions back onto oneself. So I hadn't tried anything specifically oriented towards coaching. I think what the amazing thing that happened is that you made the entry point so easy. Like I distinctly remember sitting in my chair talking to you and I was like, I'm at peace. Like I am doing the work, you know, because we mentioned that you have to do the work. There's no other way around it. You have to do that inner work and that mental work and that soul work. Right. Um, But it was just peaceful because I got to do it. Like now I had the opportunity to talk through, to have that shared safe space where I could say anything and it would be received with a lot of um, a lot of love and no judgment whatsoever. Mm. Okay, so what is it like to be in a coaching session? Yeah, um, I think the first word that immediately comes to mind, and this is not to sound woo woo or 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 any of that lean, but it's sacred. Right, it's a time where someone else can hear you, can see you, in as full capacity as you allow them. And so there's just, I'm a pretty visual person, but I just, I envision this open prairie where all of these thoughts kind of can ripple the, the weed grass, uh, kind of like a wind, right? So I can say something, it'll ripple out through the prairie. Lisa, you as my coach were able to catch it and then kind of play it back to me. I was like, oh, so this is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm hearing. And then hearing that played back is like, huh, maybe that's an area that I need to investigate further. So just send that sense of calm, peacefulness. And kind of like wind, wind of insight flowing through. That's what I'll call it. It's a wind of insight. Oh man. Now I, I understand how those words are flowing on the pages of your book. <laughs> As I hear you talk, I love this visual. Okay. So coaching's like a wind of insight. Yes. If I may share an example of that, I remember you and I were talking about perfectionism, which is something that is, uh, you know, a pretty common topic for, for folks these days. And I remember you had mentioned to me that Katya, like, have you considered that perfectionism, your perfectionism is rooted in fear. And Elisa, because of your training, because of your education, because of your experience, like that is definitely one branch, one avenue. And then I think you asked, like, does this land? Like, how does this resonate with you? And I entertained it because it was something that I hadn't thought about before because I'm a type A person, pretty good at getting things done, want things to be done at a, you know, with a high quality. I'm like, huh. What is the other perspective is that I'm scared that if it doesn't get done, then all of these consequences, these worst case scenarios will happen. Do they ever? No, but it's rooted in that fear. And so that was an example of you using your knowledge, your expertise to kind of say like, this is one avenue. This is one possibility. If it resonates with you, great. Let's explore that. If it doesn't, if you think it's rooted in something else, let's keep digging. Right. And then I also remember you asking about, um, you had invited me, and this is distinctly different than advice, but you had invited me to, to experience, to ponder, to experiment 
with the question, what would it feel like in your body? It's like, I don't know. I've never checked in with my body before. I'm so mentally driven, right? I'm so like cognitively driven. They're like, what does it mean to, to check in with myself? And I remember writing my takeaway from that session, Katya, to do check in with self. And that was amazing, right? But I wouldn't have gotten there until you kind of um, shared that invitation rather than a directive to do it. Okay. That reminded me of something from your book. You were, is it okay if I, I might give a little bit away? Of course. (laughs) Okay. So there's this scene where you're describing your cats and you Mm -hmm. said something like they live within their bodies. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of what you just shared about you checking in with yourself. So for those listening, what advice would you give them if they, if they want to be like the cats, if they want to do that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, for context, um, we bring up cats and I, I wrote a story about cats of all the things that we can learn about them. They are so driven by, you know, these, these natural cycles, like they wake up, they stretch, they know what to do with their bodies because it's just part of their biology. We as humans with our, you know, finely developed, finely fine-tuned prefrontal cortices, we are run by our intellect, by our cognition, as opposed to sometimes by our somatic systems, by the physical bodies, the physical sensations. And y'all, I wish there was an easy, easy way to just say, oh, I'm feeling stressed. Let me check in with myself, right? If it was easy, then everybody would do it. Unfortunately, that's not the case. The and I don't want to share advice because I still haven't perfected it. So Lisa, I'm curious to hear what, what your kind of um, suggestions might be. But I like to think of it as when we are stressed, that is the prime opportunity for us to do something that is hard for us, which is to check in with ourselves. So if we notice our shoulders rising, if we notice our hearts start racing, just paying that extra attention to say, whoa, something feels different. And taking that extra oomph of awareness. And I, as a, um, I'm a leadership expert by day, so I teach managers and execs leadership skills. So I always think about how do we bridge the gap between what we know is good for us in theory versus how we can actually apply day-to-day as a habit, right? And it's remembering to pay attention, especially when things get hard. I actually want to share, if you don't mind, I want to share a quote um, from one of my mentors. And this is something that has kind of kept me going in stressful times. It's easy to stop and think when things are easy. Real mastery is remembering to do it when you're tired or stressed or working to deadline. So treating those stressful opportunities as the opportunities to practice that self-awareness. That's good. Yeah. Because it's the time one, when we need it the most, but two, it's often the hardest to access because we're so in our heads and we might, maybe we notice our bodies and we notice we're feeling anxious, but then we go right back to our head and make that mean all of these problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm curious to hear Lisa, like, what do you advise or suggest to the clients that you work with? How do you get them to have that somatic switch? Yeah. So there's this switch in the back of your head, right about, no, I'm just kidding. There's no magic. <laughs> I was button. like, oh, I'm listening. <laughs> Confidential information. Yes. Right <laughs> but honestly, just taking a breath. And I don't, I don't know if you noticed, I was closing my eyes when you were describing getting in touch with the body a little bit, because for mm-hmm. me, closing my eyes is my cue to get out of the external observation, mm-hmm. what's going on out there and back within what's happening in me. 
And so closing your eyes, taking a breath and with the exhale, imagining yourself sinking into your body and each exhale is like the mind releasing itself from your focus. And you just notice observationally how you feel in your body. You don't have to describe it to yourself in technical terms or anything like that. Just notice how it feels. Notice your body. Notice maybe there's a tension somewhere. Maybe there's a flutter in your stomach. Maybe your stomach is hungry. Maybe your toe is itchy. Like it doesn't even matter. Just notice without making it mean, oh, I should grab a snack or, oh, I should itch my toe, whatever it is. There's no, there's no meaning attached to it. It's just, this is my body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's also giving ourselves the permission to believe and trust that our bodily senses are just as valid as our cognitive senses. Oh, wow. I, I want to like word quote that right there. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So why do you think that might be hard for, for us to remember? I think the nature of a lot of how our society is based right now is something that, uh, that has been fascinating to me for years is the fact that we're in this knowledge economy, right? A lot of us um, are in organizations, in workplaces where we use our brains a lot. We're so cognitively and intellectually driven that we're like, well, I can just logic my way in and or out of this. However, we still have a body. The body is just as important as signaling to us what it needs, what it may require, as what we think it may need. And I I share this because, you know, it's been a a really, I'll be upfront with this, it's really been a stressful week. And I've noticed the stress building up in my shoulders and my neck to the point where it's gotten sore. And that to me, like beyond just kind of like having this, this, this feeling that, hmm, something is off. Now it's manifested into this really like physical pain. Like, whoa. My body keeps the score. It knows what's happening. Even if my brain's like, no, Kaji, just keep going. Work your 16th hour today. You can keep going. You have the stamina. You have the energy. We can convince ourselves or trick ourselves to keep going when we know that in- internally, our brain's like, stop, take a break. Yeah. Yeah. I've, this reminds me of a session I was doing with another client and she was annoyed that she would get annoyed about mm-hmm business. So she's running her own business and she wanted coaching on how to not get annoyed. And so I asked her, well, what do you think that part of you is wanting? And she was kind of taken aback because that wasn't her goal. Her goal was to get rid of the annoyer that she called it, you know, excuse my French, but she said the bitchy girl inside, like, how do I get rid of that? Yeah. And what we realized though, through coaching is when I asked her, okay, what is, what does she want you to know? Is that part of her wanted to know that she needed some rest. Mm -hmm. And so she hadn't been listening to the little cues. And so she had to get kind of bitchy to show herself, Hey, I might need a break here. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but for me, after that part usually becomes, I get sick. And that's where the body is like, Mm -hmm. Hey, if you're not going to give yourself a break, we're going to make it. So that's the only option. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And if this still isn't convincing, right. If we were to look at what's going on in the brain, when we're stressed out, our sympathetic nervous system goes haywire, right? The amygdala fires, like all of these parts in the brain, uh, kind of are trying to signal to our bodies, to ourselves that, Hey, something is up. But then when you talk about Lisa, taking that breath, right? 
having the increased oxygen through our bodies into our brains activates the parasympathetic nervous system. That's our peacekeeping system. It helps us get back down to homeostasis. So even if you don't believe that the bodies are, are wise, even if you're like, nah, I can just keep going, I can logic myself out of this, there are finely tuned mechanisms within the brain itself, the way that you know the neurotransmitters, the way that the synapses fire. But like this stuff matters at a neurological level. And that to me, I'm a pretty like intellectually driven person. Like, show me the data, show me the evidence. That to me was most compelling because I'm like, yeah, yeah, body stuff like. People who who like tune in with themselves all the time, they can do that. I'm gonna I'm gonna look at the the logical uh, part of it, but then it is there. Evidence is there. What if we were to actually do it now? Now that we know that it's actually valid. Mm. Yeah, you've basically used your own emphasis of logic to show yourself the power of the body. That is yes. brilliant. Yes, exactly. It, it all just comes full circle. Truly. Okay. So you shared a little bit about some of the perfectionism stuff that came up and what you learned uh, that way. What are some other takeaways from coaching and from your life at large that have helped you have more ahas and continue forward? Yeah. I think one of the biggest ones that you and I discussed was that perfectionism might not necessarily be the goal and that sometimes 80% is good enough. 80, 90%, even 70% is good enough. What's really interesting to me about hearing myself echo this, this to you, Lisa, is that at my organization, that's actually one of our core values. 80% is greater than zero. And it's fascinating because while we may have high standards for ourselves, while we may have high standards for others, it's not always going to end up a hundred percent. And again, allowing ourselves the permission to say like, Hey, sometimes something is going to go wrong. I can already anticipate it because statistically, right, by sheer circumstance, by sheer statistical analysis, something will not be perfect. And saying, once I accept that, if I can assume that to be true, then I can let go of the fact that, hey, this plan that I had, it completely fell through. And sometimes that's okay. That's part of that statistical, uh, you know, anomalies that can happen. So I think, um, I think that that still kind of stems back to perfectionism, but that was a huge takeaway for me that we're not aiming for hundred percent, which is also very much against how I think the educational system um, operates, how a lot of work operates. We're like, we need to be perfect. At least I was raised to get straight A's, right? And if I didn't get straight A's, there would be consequences. I'm like, hmm, what if that's not the right assumption to be living my life by? What if it's okay to get an A minus or a B plus? <sighs> Mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. I like to think about getting an A means doing B level work. Like the A is getting a B, which I don't know, for those of us who are driven from that school type of mindset, it can help give us a little bit of, of leeway there. So we still get our A in a secret way. It's just yeah. by doing B level. Right. Output. Right. Exactly. It's like, to whom are we, for whom are we getting the A's? For the external influences, right? Like school, like work, like projects, or for ourselves? Or is it a healthy combination of both? Mm, say more about that. Ah, I just, I, I think about like where the expectations are coming from. Is work, is school, is life demanding 100% of our effort, of our energy, of our time? Maybe, right? For some of us, absolutely maybe. Or... Is it the fact that we are demanding 100% of our time, of our energy, of our effort for others? 
If so, what room does that leave for us? And again, this is so fascinating hearing uh, myself echo this because like this week, again, it was, you know, 11 o'clock at night. I'm like, well, I'm still working. And then the next night I was completely burned out. I'm like, Katya, you are taking the night off. You're going to go do a skincare routine, which you've neglected for years. You're going to actually take a longer shower by a minute just to give yourself that extra self-love and self-care. And then I had an amazing sleep. You know, I'm not saying that that's a panacea for things. It is not. Right. But remembering to pour into yourself to say, like, today, I'm going to give you 100% self love and 0% work after you work a full day. And that's okay. Yeah. I love this idea of giving yourself your own grading system, not, not to tear yourself down, but to give yourself the opportunity to get an A doing something you maybe wouldn't have given yourself permission to do otherwise. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. That's how we, that's how we built that up, right? We invest in ourselves just as much as we invest in others and other external expectations. Mm, Yeah. Any other takeaways or moments of realization you want to share? I think the final one is grace, the concept of grace. Um, I think that's something you and I talked about all those years ago. It's something that one of my dear managers, a, a former manager and I talked about, how do we give ourselves the grace again, when things don't go right, when we mess up, um, how do we train our minds and our brains to not be as hard on ourselves because we know that we are our own harshest critics. So what does grace look like? And I, I can't tell you, you know, Lisa, what grace looks like for, for you. I can't tell what grace looks like for anybody else. It's that internal figuring out, well, maybe grace looks like an extra serving of ice cream. Maybe it looks like a really rejuvenating run. Maybe it looks like binging Netflix for three hours straight, right? Whatever that is, is finding our own flavor of it such that we know we can rely on that comfort to bring ourselves back up to some level of homeostasis. Yeah. I think hearing that question, I was thinking, okay, well, what does grace look like for me? And one of the things that came up is when I'm having a hard day, letting myself cry and actually telling myself, oh, it's okay. It's okay. You're Mm going to be okay. And Mm -hmm. letting myself be, be a little bit like a baby sometimes in the sense of letting it be okay to feel, to throw a little tantrum to myself, to acknowledge the, the voice inside the one that wants something that it's not getting Mm -hmm. and to truly hear it because whenever our voice or voice, whenever our brain talks to us, whether it's a positive uplifting voice or that inner critic or the inner child, whatever voice it is, it's there for a reason. If we can look past the specifics of what it says and get to the core of its intent, it's pretty much always there to support us in some way. Even Mm -hmm. if it's something we took from childhood that sounds really nasty, we took it in for a reason usually to keep us safe, to keep us supported. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to take to heart what it's saying, mm-hmm. but approach it from a place of it's asking for help. How yeah. can I give it help? Yes. Yes. It's kind of asking ourselves like, what is my brain saying? My brain is having the thought that my brain is saying all of these things inside that I'm hearing. But sometimes those are just thoughts. We can choose whether or not to believe them. 
Lisa, your comment about crying, you know, like letting yourself feel the feelings, feel the tantrums. I cried twice on Sunday and I will willingly admit that because I was having a really hard weekend, y'all. And I was just like, wow, life is very overwhelming. And I remember sobbing into my partner's shoulder. I'm like, just, just let me cry this out. Like, I know this is irrational. I know that this is not going to solve anything. But the thing that is helping me do is to process, right? To get that all out. And then I was like, um, you know, I'm, I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not mad at anything. I'm not even angry. I'm just overwhelmed. And that is one way. Like, I remember telling myself, like, I'm just going to feel this and then get back on track. But I have about 30 minutes left of crying. So let's just make the most of it. Adding that that bit of like, I remember there's tears and laughter at the same time because it was so ridiculous. It's like, <laughs> this is this is inner Katya coming out to play. And I'm just going to let her play and, and throw a little bit of a tantrum to myself about it. And it was fine. Yeah. Because if we don't give it the time to be let out, it'll show up somewhere else. Like it needs to be processed. Mm -hmm. That's why projection, transference, you know, we project our feelings into others. We, we transfer our emotions onto others that those are, those are bricks of a very shaky building, you know, that, that we can build with other people and we don't want to do that. Mm. Yeah. So for anyone listening, you're welcome to ask yourself the same question of what does grace look like for me? And I think you might be surprised to hear and maybe delighted too with what comes up and trust your gut or whether you call it your gut or your inner wisdom, whatever it is on, on what you hear back, because it's offering you some insight. Yeah. Yeah. And if nothing comes up, right. If we ask ourselves the question, like, what does grace look like for me? And you're like, I don't know. I, I don't need, I feel like I don't know myself. Then that's okay. Trying another day, right? Either trying another day or asking, well, maybe what would my inner child want at this moment? Like if I were really to look back at five-year-old Lisa or five-year-old Katya, what might she want in this moment? So trying different if basically I remember this quote, I grew up with it. If one door closes, another one opens. So if one door is kind of feeling locked, approaching it from a different angle, from a different perspective of a question. Yeah. So we we've talked about opening different doors in terms of the mental door and the emotional door and the body door. Mm -hmm. I think the other door is that soul door, that intuition door. So do you have any, any wisdom you'd like to share about ways you connect to your own intuition or what that looks like for you? Yeah. Lisa, I'm curious to think about this question maybe three to six months down the line, because I will be frank with you. I haven't been great at accessing that soul over the past year because of writing a book of working full time. And I, I have been telling myself for the last year after this book journey is, is waning, or at least um, the majority of it is kind of behind me, then I can tune in to ask myself, who is Katya? What is she about? What are her drivers? What are her motivators? I think that you know, this year has been hard. The ways that I've been trying to access that soul, that soul door is by taking myself on long walks. I'm a huge runner. I'm a huge hiker. And, um, one of my things is that I found solace on mountain peaks or in the depths of the ocean. So just spending that quiet, solitary time somewhere, either really, really high or really low at sea level. Um, because you kind of take that time where there is nothing that's vying for your attention except for nature. You've got, you've got the birds, you've got the sunshine, you've got trees, whatever environment that you live in. Um, that is my way to say, oh, I'm in this moment. 
there's nothing else going on for me right now besides my breathing, my my panting if I'm running or trying to hike up a really big hill. Like, what does that feel like? And then like asking, what else? What else is this signaling? It's kind of like the ladder of whys or the ladder of what's. Um, I'm really curious to hear your perspective of, because I, I know that you you share and you, you coach clients on how to access that soul. Um, what does that look like for a lot of the folks that you talk to? How does, how do they access that soul? Yeah. Yeah. I'll share. And first though, I just want to acknowledge you hiking up the mountain or noticing your breath or getting that solace to me, that represents that sense of connection or reconnecting to that part of you. So I know you mentioned check in in three to six months because life's been hard. And I, I completely appreciate and respect that. I'm also hearing, I think you've been doing it. Does that feel true or does that not feel accurate? It it feels true. And I, I'm wondering like if I'm, <laughs> this is so funny hearing me say that. I'm wondering if I'm doing it wrong, right? Because I'm like, am I only accessing the physical part by noticing, you know, my heart beating, by noticing my lungs expanding? Is that enough? Or do I have to go deeper into soul territory beyond physical territory? And that's something that I'm trying to figure out for myself. Like, what does it mean for myself? I'm curious to hear what, what things you might share in that realm. Yeah. So I think our minds can, can try to do it right. Which mm-hmm. when we're trying to get the checklist of like, okay, what do I need to do first? What do I need to do second? Mm-hmm. What do I need to do third? The structure of it makes it difficult to actually connect to yourself in that way. Mm-hmm. So if, if you hear your brain go, I wonder if I'm doing this wrong for, for anyone out there, mm-hmm. the brain's always going to wonder that. Because it's mm-hmm. never going to know for sure, because there's no true science or data or evidence in the moment to show you, yes, right now I'm connected. And right now I'm not, mm-hmm. maybe science will go there eventually, but mm-hmm. we don't have a way to do that right now. And so the brain doesn't have a sense of certainty. And whenever it's an uncertainty, it's going to question the unfamiliar and it's going to wonder. Mm-hmm. And so instead of answering that question from like the mental energy, what can help is first to get into the body. Like you were saying, the breath, the heartbeat, I do think that's the way in. Mm -hmm. And as you do that, imagining your brain, just taking a seat back, just letting go, Mm -hmm. just releasing, just creating a sense of trust and safety in yourself and in the environment that you're in to settle back, to notice your body. And then after you notice your body, like the heartbeat, the breath, notice the, the space the silence, the contentment, notice Mm -hmm. the calmness. And from that space, notice if you, if you get a calling towards something, if you see an image, if you have a story come to mind, if, if you get like a tingling sensation, if, Mm -hmm. if there's some sort of spark of insight that just seems to come to you, it'll feel different than the mind energy because the mind has a very sharp, sharp aspect to it. And mm-hmm. it's very structured and detailed, but the soul tends to flow. And I use the word soul. Others will say intuition, their true self. Mm-hmm. It comes out sometimes through the subconscious, but it isn't the same as the subconscious. So it's that it's an energy within that you can always access. And, and for some folks, they do it through writing. So I'm curious. Mm-hmm. That that's kind of the way that I, I connect with it is in terms of getting calm, releasing, and then kind of just asking myself, do I have anything to share with 
myself. And Mm -hmm. then I'll either write or speak. Mm -hmm. When you think about your process of writing your book, where do you think that was coming from? It's a beautiful question. The actual process itself was an invitation for myself to run an experiment for a year amidst the chaos and the ever-changing nature of the world. Could I found, find moments to just be? I like to, I like to really think of it. What are we leaning towards? Are we right now human beings or human doings? Are we constantly on doing, doing, doing versus finding those little pockets, right? Where you can access the soul, you can access your inner body, access whatever feels like it's internal to you. And writing for me was kind of writing the truth, the lowercase t truth of the world as I saw it, right? So in this story about cats, I was like, wow, I have these three beautiful little creatures that I get to live with and try to see what might be going on for them, right? We're, of course, um, personifying them, right? We're, we're assigning pers- uh, uh, human-like qualities to animals. Um, there was a story about a house that burned down and the beautiful lemon tree that was in the yard. And it was one of my favorite stories. And it's almost like taking different braids of thoughts or different uh, strands of thoughts and weaving them together into some sort of braid or some sort of fabric. And that to me, again, pretty, pretty visual uh, processor. That to me is kind of like putting, pulling all those different threads together into some sort of tapestry. Like mm. what does one ordinary person's experience look like for a year? That was kind of the, the process of writing that book. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. And it's making me think about the word thoughts. And I think, I think we need multiple words for the word thought, because in my mind and self you have the mm-hmm. thoughts that are like the mental thoughts, like that come from that more sharpness. And then you have the thoughts that I would think of as soul thoughts that are deep inspiration or intuition that come through. And so it's just fascinating to think about what it means to have a thought and where they come from and what it represents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa, I want to also add slightly tangential to the book um, that our inner thoughts, our inner self can come out through structure. I'll share an example of what I mean. Um, every quarter I do a little bit of a self-review. So I do a deliberate check-in on, um, you know, literally every quarter, September, June, December, and March. And I do this to not only celebrate all the wins that I've had at work and life, all the, you know, the movies, the books, the, the new music that I've discovered and participated in, but also as a way to say like, is my life going where I want it to be? And am I, if I were to be really, truly honest with myself, am I where I want to be? And some quarters, I'm less honest with myself than others, because maybe there's just a lot going on. Other quarters, I'm like, wow, things need to change. I've written about this for the last six quarters, for the last you know year and a half. Maybe that's an invitation for me to dig a little bit deeper. So some of that, some of that inner knowing, that inner wisdom can come in through um, structure. And I really love that because, you know, I'm a calendar organized person. I, I need structure in my life. Otherwise it's chaos. Um, so thinking about it, like if that's what works for you, that could be another avenue to explore. Oh, I love that you said that. Yeah. Because the ego part of us, it uses structure to feel safe and secure. So mm-hmm. some of us do that by sitting in nature. Others do that by having a specific 
structured process that we take ourselves through, but it creates safety either way. And that energetic response to safety allows us to tap into ourselves. So thank you for sharing that process. Cause I think for those of us who are a little more logical, that could be a way for them to get, to get in. Mm-hmm. And we find that the soul isn't really very structured itself, but mm-hmm. it's, I've mentioned this before, but you can have a glass of water. Well, if you just had water, you, it's hard to drink it. You have no container to hold it, but when you have the glass and you put the water in the glass, then the water has value because you can actually drink it. And so the structure creates the opportunity to take in the water. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It almost makes me think of meditation, right? We enter a state of meditation or of, of deep thought and then we exit out of it, but we're not constantly well, unless, unless you know a secret, uh, dear listeners and Lisa, that, that I don't know, unless you're meditating 100% of the time, I applaud you if you do, um, then it has a start and an end, right? A flow in and a flow out of, yeah. kind of like water in a glass. I love that analogy, Lisa. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, okay. We, we've talked about a lot of different aspects uh, from the coaching side, from your book side. And since we worked together, you've done so much. I mean, we've mentioned the book several times. You've didn't you also move? And then your career has shifted a, a lot in, in different expansions as well. Can you walk us through a little more about what that looks like and what kept you going? Absolutely. So at the time that we met, I was working in higher education and also pursuing grad school in a different city, 130 miles away. This is a very hectic time. After I had graduated with my master's in organizational development and knowledge management, I kind of had the entire world being my oyster. And what I mean by that is that like, I didn't have any attachments, didn't have any obligations in terms of, you know, relationships or anything like that. So I remember thinking to myself that summer or that spring, it's like when Katya is 111 and on her deathbed, because, you know, 111 is a great, uh, great time to conk out. It's a prime number. It feels, it feels very tangible. It's an well, angel I'm, number too. I love the oh, different good. angles. Oh, no. Nice. Like, prime number. I'm like angel number. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this, this sort of confluence here. We're, we're coming from it from all sides. So when I'm 111, what is the story that I will want to have lived through? What is the story of Katya that I will want to tell myself when I'm old and wrinkly? And is a story that like, well, you know, I'm really happy where I was living. I have such an incredible community, all these beautiful friends. I'm like genuinely happy and content. Or is the story, she thought about something hard. She thought about like, shit, this would be really difficult to do. But then she did it anyway. You know, she dreamed it, so she did it. And I know that this sounds like a little bit like, oh, you know, hoity-toity, or it can come off as that way. But really, it was an invitation for me to seek something different because I didn't want to grow complacent in a place where I was already so overjoyed to be. I needed a challenge. So moved to the second largest city in the U.S., Los Angeles. I moved without having a job lockdown. And Lisa, if you know me, that's very out of character, right? Because I'm a planner. I like to plan things in advance. But I remember one of the lessons that grad school had actually taught me, interestingly, was trust the process and something that I think you and I also approached in different words. I'm trusting the process that if I put in the hard work, then I was going to come out okay. And luckily that did happen. I had a bunch of interviews, a bunch of conversations. I ended up uh, going to people operations at a tech company, which was lovely. One of my favorite mentors and bosses became my boss and she's such a bright soul. And then our company went through a merger. 
a month after the pandemic started, which was a wild time. So it was just a very tumultuous, stressful, lonely time. And then helped the company through a merger, worked in learning and development, people operations, really helping people thrive when the whole world was shutting down. And when I was kind of feeling a little, little crispy from burnout myself, but luckily had um, been so grateful to work with an organization called Life Labs, who does a lot of executive manager and individual contributor training on leadership skills, the little things that make the biggest impact. And happened to see it on my feed one day. I was like, huh, I was just, I remember my hands were shaking when, when I texted my partner and my friend, like, should I apply to this? And they were like, yeah, just do it. Right. I was like, huh, where did I hear that Nike phrase before? Just do it. And so I did it. And um, so grateful to have been here for the last year. In that same year that I started at Life Labs, I began writing a book. I moved in with my wonderful partner. So all of these changes happened all at once and they blossomed. And I think that the thing that, you know, to back to your question, the thing that kept me going was it was an attitude of why not? I can experiment. These decisions are not final, right? I'm not choosing like, it's not that big of a decision that I can not move away from it. But also an attitude of what am I running towards versus running away from? I think that the most fruitful decisions are the ones that we choose to go towards versus the one where we're running away from a problem or a difficult time. Sometimes those decisions may be necessary. We need to move away from a dangerous or an uncomfortable situation. But what happens if we were to shift our orientation around? What are we running towards? Mm-hmm. I think that's like, that's something that ke- that's kept me going. Cause I'm like, I'm going to play, I'm going to experiment. I'm going to find out. Let's see what happens. Yes. I noticed that perspective a lot when I'm coaching clients on their career, they're so focused on what they don't want mm-hmm. that they never ask themselves what they want. That whole mm-hmm. question. So Thank you for sharing that and just reminding us all to look at where are we trying to go? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. It's that needs forward, right? Kind of thinking versus the deficit. Yeah. And throughout your journey, I mean, you've, you've created an incredible brand for yourself and the way that you've been going through, we've gotten to know you a little bit in that. What would you say makes you unique and, and what advice would you give to others who are wanting to do a similar type of career path as yourself? Hmm. I think for the latter question in similarities, similarities in career path, I think people are our strongest resource and our strongest network. Meaning I, Lisa, you and I had talked about uh, those things called informational interviews. I just call them conversations because it's just a conversation with another person. We all know just from maybe this episode alone that people love talking about themselves, right? So giving and finding opportunities for, uh, to get folks to share with us their stories, especially if we're in career transitions, can be one of the most powerful ways to, I don't love the, I don't love the phrase or the word network, but gives us an opportunity to build our circle, to build our repertoire of all these beautiful humans who can help us along the way. Um, I don't think there's anything particularly unique about me because every single person is unique. But if I had to boil it down to one thing, um, I think I do put in the hard work because work is hard, life is hard, and we keep going, right? While also trying to practice giving ourselves the grace of rest, the grace of tuning inward. So that's something that I'm currently working on. I'm trying to uh, put in the hard work to do that. So that's my next sort of journey. In fact, I told myself this summer, Katya, this is the summer of rest. You're going to learn and try to not only intellectualize, but also to feel 
what it means like to rest. Yes. Oh, such good advice. And I think, you know, if you're looking for a good read, you could read your own book back to yourself because I felt like a theme within that book for me, at least what what I took from it was anywhere you go, you can find a pause to just listen, to just be kind of like what you were saying with human being. And so I feel like you, you wrote the guide through story and example in terms of ways in which we can do that right in your own book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that you mentioned the word guide, Lisa, because I'm glad that that's what resonated for you. My hope in writing joy in plain sight was not for it to be didactic or like, here's how you have joy in your life because it shows up differently for everybody, but rather because human beings are so driven by stories, right? If I, as just an ordinary human with one, um, just thought to have an experiment for a year, if I were to vulnerably share some of my, you know, uh, vulnerabilities out into the world, maybe that would inspire other folks like you, like other readers to say, huh, what are some of the stories that I'm living? Where's the color in my life? Cause it is there. It does exist. Mm, beautiful. And do you have a couple more minutes for us to dive into your book a bit more? Of course. Absolutely. Okay. So we've been talking about it a lot. You kind of just shared what you're hoping people can get out of it. And there was one of the first phrases I remember that really got me to pause. And I think it's right near the beginning of the book was you were talking about self-sabotaging our own attention span. And you shared some research on that. And so for those of you who are listening and who notice this phrase of why do I keep self-sabotaging or why do I always get so distracted? It's a theme that came up right in the beginning of the book. So would you mind sharing a bit more about that concept and what people can do if they notice themselves doing that? Of course, of course. To walk us through sort of the the empirical evidence, right? There's research that says that knowledge workers tend to have about 20 interruptions in a given hour. That's one interruption every three minutes, y'all. That's way too many interruptions. How are we supposed to get any sort of deep work done? Moreover, about half of those interruptions are inflicted upon by ourselves. So let's say we're working on something hard. Our focus is already so close to being done. And then we self-interrupt. We're like, what if there's something in the fridge that wasn't there the first 16 times that I checked that day, right? It's trying to pull ourselves into a zone of comfort when things are uncomfortable. And moreover, we have kind of this global attention economy. It's, it's a phrase that actually came about in the 1980s by Herbert Simon and then was recoined again by theoretical physicist Michael Goldaber. And they basically posited that when we have so much information that actually creates a, quote, poverty of attention, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Because think about all of our notifications on our phone, social media, through just the the loudness, the sounds of the world itself. That all is seeping away all of our ability to focus. Yeah. And that was happening for me too. Lisa, has that happened to you in the last what, five years, especially? Oh yeah. Well, and you just think about all the different social media inboxes that you could check at any time. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. so easy to get distracted. Yes. Yes. And those, those social media outlets are designed to be addicting, right? It's kind of like a little slot machine for our brain. So it's like, this is, this does not feel good. Like I was just not feeling good. I was not feeling present in my own self and my body. So it's like, what if there was a way that I could pay attention to the tiny little good things in my life? Just like 
paying deliberate attention to a hummingbird or maybe a super crunchy leaf on a sidewalk or the way that the sun hits this one plant that I have at about 7 p.m. at night. It's just the most beautiful view. Like, whoa, all of that's right here. Just got to look, right? And then the looking is the product of the book. How can I deliberately look for the things that make me pause and wonder, joy, absurdity, sorrow, serendipity of the entire state of the human experience, at least in my eyes? Yeah. Well, and you represent that with your stories around doing the dishes versus drinking coffee and all of these different ways of finding joy, of taking a pause, of really just noticing what's happening around us from a place that brings some contentment to it. Mm-hmm. Are there ever times when you either, well, maybe you can't find joy or you, you just don't feel like you want to? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I will say that our goal is not to be happy or joyous or joyful hundred percent of the time. That's not reasonable. That's not our human makeup. So in times where we're grieving, in times where a traumatic event either to us directly has happened or indirectly in the world that still impacts us, then it might not be possible to access that joy. The whole point is not to try to access it whenever, right? We can't. If, if, that, were, if that were possible, then that would make us maybe a little bit more happy. But it's rather recognizing that the feelings that we're having, likely, so you mentioned the crying, right? Being able to feel those feelings fully, whether that's sorrow, whether that's the highest joy, it's being able to recognize that, hey, I'm in this moment and I get to feel these feelings. I'm not a numb, you know, inanimate object, but I'm actually a creature that has all of these feelings that come to light. My job is to feel them, not to numb them away, as hard as that is. And I will say that I also have periods where I numb my own feelings, right? Whether it's with TV, whether it's with like, the sixth cookie of the day. Sometimes I like to overindulge in sweets, but that's because we're human, right? And giving ourselves the grace to say like, whoa, Katya, I've had a really tough day. This sixth cookie might make you happy in the moment. Probably not going to make you happy in the long run, but maybe just today, it's all right. Just feel it. Yeah. I think that's where there are different styles of coaching as well, because I think there's some in the coaching industry who really are about managing your mind and changing your thoughts and making it so you can feel better. And yeah, we all, we want to feel better. And yet sometimes the way there is through the, the sorrow is through the pain is, is through the growth that comes from that knowledge. So I love to coach from this perspective of the whole human of honoring the emotions, honoring the, the ego itself, because it's, it's here for a reason. Otherwise we just wouldn't have, we wouldn't be here. There, yes. There's a reason we're here as humans on this earth. Right. And so let's allow ourselves to have the full human experience, which means the full plethora of emotions. We don't mm-hmm. have to mope in them. And mm-hmm. yet we can allow ourselves to experience them as they emerge to help ourselves walk through them mm-hmm. and then release them too, mm-hmm. not, to, not to get stuck in them either. Yes. It makes me think of, are we trying to solve for the short-term solution to feel happy, like to change our minds instantly and feel good then? If so, there are plenty of ways to do so. Or are we trying to look at the long-term, the slower burning solution that can carry us through it versus around the pain point? A lot of times we find ourselves learning lessons over and over and over again. 
So a question that I like to ask myself to, to the people that I kind of coach is, what lessons do you find yourself learning every six months, every year, every couple of years? Maybe those are the lessons that we haven't yet internalized, which is okay, right? Because it's a process. It's not the destination. You know, they talk about it's a journey, not the destination. There is truth to that. But thinking about how do we create those long-term sustainable solutions to make sure that we're not constantly relearning those difficult lessons time and time again. That takes that work, that self-reflection. Yeah. So then what would you say to somebody who's curious about coaching, wants to experience these types of transformations, but maybe is on the fence about it? What, what would you offer to them? Yeah. Lisa, as, as much as we talk about feelings, right? My, my new phrase is just feel it. I think that we're, we're going to have to pull our old friend Nike here and say, just do it. Just book that initial call because that has the potential to not only change the way that you think, not only to transform your life, but also to give yourself the gift of tuning in with yourself. I really like to view coaching as I get to have a gift of an hour every week, every month, whatever the cadence is, to have all the attention on me, right? All the focus is on how do I show up for myself and for my loved ones best. And that's a gift. So Mm -hmm. reframing it that way, how can I gift myself for this time with this expert coach? Um, And then taking that plunge, just doing it. Mm. Yeah, that's such a good point about it. And for those who are ready and wanting to read your book and they're ready to actually start getting started and implement things, what would you offer to them to help them start connecting to, to joy right now? Yeah. I think that the biggest takeaway that I'd love to share with us is something that I call the treasure hunt framework. And that stems in the way that we live our lives. The way that we as humans go throughout about about our days is via a series of assumptions, right? Whether implicit or explicit that we hold. For example, Lisa, if you assume that most people in the world are good, chances are you're more likely to meet really nice, good, kind humans than less good humans, right? That's the assumption that we choose to hold, the, the view, the bias, the perception through which we see the world. Similarly, what if we were to assume That out there in the world, beyond our sort of selves, there are infinite treasures hidden in the everyday world of our every single day experience. What if there was just that infinite, boundless set of moments that can really make us pause to say, oh, wow, holy smokes, I get to be in this world. I get to be here today. And whether that's, you know, a really refreshing sip of your first cup of coffee over the morning, whether it's your pet snuggling with you, whether it's taking that extra moment to feel how the suds from you washing dishes glide over your fingers. Life is comprised as a series of moments. Our entire livelihoods, the way I like to think of it, is like beads on a string. And we collect those beads. We collect those little tiny infinite moments in the everyday. We're not trying to affect big changes. Big changes are hard, y'all. They're valuable, but not every one of us can afford to just pick up our lives and move to Cabo and hopefully live a happier life, right? So what if we could find those moments nestled into our routine? Then it becomes our job to be treasure hunters. What if we could assume the treasure hunter framework and say, today, I am going to deliberately find something that makes me pause. That is my, that's my entire job today, to deliberately find something that's going to make me pause. 
and then taking the time to either write it down if you're a writer, to mentally capture it in your minds if, if you like to process mentally, or to paint, to illustrate, to share with a loved one. Hey, like today, I found an amazingly yellow grapefruit outside of my tree. And I'm looking at a grapefruit tree outside my window right now. And I just, I've never seen grapefruits so big and bulbous. I've never seen them be that yellow. That's my little joy for today. I took the second to notice. And that's mm. the treasure hunt framework. Do you keep track of these? Like, are you, do you have like a little joy journal where you write them down or? Um, I used to, what, when I had to like ramp up the practice, I, it was very helpful to write them down, right. Kind of like a gratitude practice, really helpful to write it down right now. I do a mental checklist whenever I'm brushing my teeth. So James Clear talks about, he's a, a habits researcher. He talks about habit stacking. You stack on a new habit to an existing habit. I hope that every one of us brushes our teeth for at least two minutes a day. If we do, right. When we're brushing our teeth, what if we find that as an opportunity to reflect on the little joys if we don't want to write it down? That's kind of my own process. I'd be curious to hear from folks listening. Would love to know, seriously, reach out to, to me or Lisa to share how do you find your own joy? Because every one of us has our own unique way of approaching it. Yeah. Okay. So, where can people find you? Yes. So, if, um, Joy in plain sight is something that resonates with you, or if something is that resonates with someone in your life, feel free to grab it on Amazon. The hard, uh, the paperback rather, and the digital edition are both available there. It's also available on Barnes and Noble. If you'd like to connect with me, I would love that. Seriously, please shoot me a message. Please say hello. Feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Joy in Plain Sight, just the handle Joy in Plain Sight. Or find me on LinkedIn, on Facebook. My name is Katia Davidova. I think it'll also be in the show notes. Y'all, I would really love to hear from your voices, your experiences, your own wisdom that you already hold. So please feel free to drop me a line. Wonderful. Thank you. And yes, all of these links will be in the show notes. So you all will be able to get in contact. And for those of you who are wanting to do coaching, you've listened to this episode and you're feeling the nudge, you're feeling the call, uh, you're welcome to schedule a consult with me. It is a free initial call where we'll talk about what's working for you, what you're wanting, some of the shifts that you're wanting to make. We'll roadmap out a plan for how we can help you in achieving those goals. And we'll talk about what coaching can look like specific to you and your journey as well. All right. Please do it y'all. Lisa is an incredible, beautiful human being. And I'm just so, so blessed to know you, Lisa. Thank you so much for allowing me to partake on this journey and to continue weaving it together all these years later. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to do this together. I appreciate you. Yes, I appreciate you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And if you loved what you heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. I help my clients to show up and do their work their way with soul. Whether it's so you can excel in your current role or so you can figure out what you want for your next role and get that role, coaching can help you get there. It begins with a consult. Sign up for yours by going to believeseed.com slash schedule. This is your free call and it is that first step towards that new life, that transformation into you doing your work in your way with soul.